Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Darren, one of the apprentices in this church. Usually, I serve at Liturgical and at Smack too. But anyway, thank you for giving me a chance to share God's word with you all. Now, before hearing God's word, let's come to God in prayer first. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open our eyes today so that we can truly understand today's passage before you. That we may come to see who Jesus is based on your word and see how we see how knowing this important truth will make a great impact in our lives so that we may live for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What is a confession? Well, that depends on what's the context. In the context of a church community, confession can be about confessing our sins to one another. Sometimes it's about confessing the common faith that we all share, like when we recite the Apostles or Nicene Creed together. In other contexts, confession is about confessing your love to someone you have feelings for. And some confessions we've made are really significant. Have you ever made a particular confession that's really significant? Just to share this one time, I remember I made quite a significant confession when I was 14. During that time, I had this huge crush on this girl, and she was my classmate. My high school friends in Smack 2 will probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, whenever I talked to her, my heart would beat really fast, like, people, 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 people. And my heart would beat even faster, like, do, 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 when I was thinking about confessing my feelings to her. After much hesitation of, should I? Should I not? I should lah. No lah. I shouldn't. I finally met up with all the guts that I had and I confessed to her. But only to be rejected later on. <laughs> Uh, quite sayang, right? But that was quite a significant confession to me, at least back then. <laughs> However, in our passage today, we'll see a confession that's so much more significant and life-changing than my story just now. Last week, our friend Daniel Wu showed us how the Pharisees and Sadducees, they asked Jesus for a sign to prove himself. But instead of playing their game, Jesus told them that only the sign of Jonah could be given to them. And that is referring to his death and resurrection. And this sign is sufficient and more than enough for us to believe in the gospel. And Daniel has shown us how Mong Cha Cha, the disciples, were like really blur sotong, man. They totally missed the point of what Jesus was trying to tell them, which is to beware of the false teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now in verse 13 of our passage today, Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. That place is a Gentile region consisting of uh, pagan worshippers like Syrian and Greek population. Jesus likely came to this place to take a break from the crowds he was previously ministering to and also to take a break from engaging with the Pharisees and Sadducees. This place is a place free from interruptions which will enable him to spend more time teaching his disciples concerning himself which is something we will see in these three weeks. Then Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The disciples replied in verse 14, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. For example, Herod Antipas, who have heard about the miracles of Jesus in chapter 14. But he was confused about the person of Jesus. He mistakenly thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. Others thought that Jesus was, Jesus was Elijah because the prophet Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come. 
But actually, that's John the Baptist as clarified by Jesus in chapter 11 because the prophetic role of Elijah was already fulfilled by John the Baptist. Some also mistaken Jesus to be Jeremiah as well due to some influence of uh, extra-biblical Jewish writings. And others mistaken Jesus to be one of the prophets. Despite all that Jesus has taught and all the miracles he has done previously, many from the crowds still didn't know his true identity. But what about the disciples? Do they know who Jesus is? So in verse 15, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Finally, someone answered rightly. Previously in our last week's sermon, we see that the disciples, including Peter, were being mongcha-cha like a blur sotong. But somehow this time, Peter was so sharp like a knife and he answered correctly. And you know what? There's something really strange going on here. Like why is Jesus asking them who he is? Didn't they already know? Back in chapter 14, when Jesus walks on water, the disciples have already worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. So why need to ask them again, leh? And if we look at the psychology of the disciples, this will give us even more headache, like really burning kepala, man. Because the disciples, especially Peter and Andrew, already know from the beginning that Jesus is the Christ. From the first chapter of the Gospel of John, Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Even Nathaniel said to Jesus in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So really, the issue here is why Jesus needs to ask them this question. They have already worshipped him and acknowledged him to be the Son of God. From the beginning, they already know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the promised King of Israel. This is a difficult question to answer, really. And I think why Jesus asked them this question here in this part of the story is to get them to examine themselves again. Are they really sure of the identity of Jesus? They have gotten his identity right from the beginning of his ministry and they have gotten his identity right again in the first half of Matthew Gospel at chapter 14. Will they get his identity right again this time? Like the crowds, they have heard his teachings you have seen his mighty miracles. But the crowds interpret Jesus differently, that he is just someone else. John, Elijah, Jeremiah, so on, so on. So are they still really sure of his identity as the Christ? Will they stick with their original interpretation of who Jesus is? Or will they take the interpretation of others, like Herod or the crowds? Because if they are really sure that Jesus is the Christ, as promised from the Old Testament, who came to be the saviour of the world, then the right thing for them to do is to commit themselves by following him all the way to the end of their lives. Turning back isn't an option if they're really sure and fully convinced that Jesus is the Christ. Hence for them, they better be sure 
don't play a fool, you know. Mm-hmm. Cannot play, play over this issue because earlier on, they have already seen Jesus being opposed and rejected. And it's going to get worse for Jesus later on. Not just for him, it's going to get worse for his disciples too. It's going to be very tough for them in the future, which we will find out in our next week's sermon. So at this juncture, Jesus wants them to be really, really sure of who they are following. Fortunately, the good news is, yes, they are still very sure that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what about us? Are we really sure that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? I reckon that most of us in the past, in our earliest stage of Christian life, say, yes, absolutely, 100%, Jesus is the Christ who came to save me from my sins. But what about today? Is your answer still the same? What about the future? Especially when the going gets tough. Using the analogy of a marriage wedding vows, I, so-and-so, take you, so-and-so, to be my lawful wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. I will love and honour you all the days of my life. Will we do the same with Jesus? When things in life don't turn out the way we expect, when we face crises in our finances, relationships, or when our faith gets challenged, when things start to not working out for us and life starts to not make any sense, will we follow what the world thinks of Jesus by saying, I guess Jesus is after all just a good moral teacher? Jesus can't be real? Christianity is just a hoax. Jesus is a legend. Or will we stick with our original confession and say, Yes, Lord Jesus, no matter what happens, for better or for worse, I will keep on acknowledging you to always be the promised Christ of God who is my Savior. Many of you probably didn't know this thing about me. A little bit more than 10 years ago, I was really struggling with how to make sense of the gospel. I wanted Christianity to be true, but I had so many questions about the Christian faith, and I could not resolve them. And I faced disappointments one after another. And I did the one thing which I deeply regret to this day. That's still my biggest regret to this day. And the consequences are still affecting me today. How I wish I can go back in time and change the past. What I did back then was not only did I renounce my faith in Jesus, but I scolded Jesus and I cursed him repeatedly. And then I just say, Jesus, you know what? I'm going to leave you for good. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Then I begin to make really bad, sinful choices in almost all areas of my life. And I bought into the lie of the devil and the world that Jesus wasn't a historical person. Jesus never existed before. He's just a legend. And I go around challenging my Christian friends and tell them that what they believe is a lie. I was doing 80s apologetics, proving to my Christian friends that uh, the huge flood in Genesis wasn't real. I was telling them Christianity isn't compatible with science. The church is just a mental hospital for the weak people who need emotional support and free therapy. People are just going to church to make themselves feel better by giving themselves false hope. No one is actually serious about checking whether is Christianity really true or not. Christians are just being 
delusional and emotional. They are not being logical and smart. And I regretted every bit of this. Later when I came to the realization that Christianity is true again, you have no idea how scared I was to come back to God. I was so afraid that God would not accept me back again for all my opposition towards Him and all the damage I have done to His people. And I'm thankful for what God says in the Bible, that I can count on Him to be faithful to His promises He made in the Bible and that He has promised to forgive all the sins of those who truly turn to Jesus. Don't be so stupid like me and make the same mistakes as me back then. So may I encourage you to continue to stick with this confession and not waver. And please do reach out to people who are struggling with Christianity, especially those who have apostatized, those who have left the faith. Maybe you have the intellectual and emotional answers that they are looking for, which will bring them back to faith. And now as we look at verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Like, eh? Didn't the Gospel of John earlier teach us that it was Andrew, the one who revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ? How come now Jesus said it's not flesh and blood, meaning to say it's not by any human that revealed this to Peter, but only God the Father? Have you ever thought about this question? So how can we square both of these together? Well, the answer to this is to recognize that, yes, on one hand, God uses humans, particularly his people, as his external mouthpiece and instrument to deliver his gospel. But on the other hand, what brings someone to faith is ultimately the internal work of God that opens up our eyes and softens our hearts. So that, like Peter, we will come to recognize that Jesus is indeed God's promised Christ. So what Jesus is saying here is referring to the internal work of God. It is the Father who opened up the eyes of Peter. That's why we can have a group of people hearing from the same person sharing the same gospel message, but only some come to faith and the rest reject the gospel. So let this be a moment of examination for ourselves to check whether has God the Father opened up our hearts and our eyes to see Jesus clearly and to be fully convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you are doubting, if you are lacking this assurance, whether has God opened up your eyes or not, then can I encourage you to pray, to ask God to help you to see Jesus clearer and to have a stronger faith in Him. And let this be a reminder for us too, to keep on praying for the people we evangelize to, to ask God to reveal Jesus to them, to open up their eyes from spiritual blindness so that they will see Jesus for who he truly is and to believe in him. So pray without ceasing. Pray, pray, pray. Don't give up praying for them. And as we continue with verse 18 to 19, arguably one of the most controversial passages between us Protestants and Roman Catholics regarding Peter. But this is not always bad, right? Like, hey, wouldn't you all agree with me? I think having some controversies in my sermon kind of helps everyone here to stay awake and pay attention to the sermon, you know? Makes things more lively for us. So I'm going to use this to my advantage, okay? 
But first, let's look at how Jesus responded to Peter's confession. In verse 18, he said, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Some interpreters suggested that these two verses cannot be referring to Peter. The rock here must be something else. For example, the rock is Jesus, or the rock is the confession that Peter has made. They think that there is a difference between Peter and rock in the original Greek. But this linguistic difference is not significant here and would be irrelevant if the conversation between Jesus and Peter was originally in Aramaic. Anyway, I beg to differ from them. I suppose they arrived at this conclusion was because of the baggage from the Roman Catholic Church which left a bad taste in their mouth. However, if we allow scripture to speak for itself, these two verses here clearly refers to the Apostle Peter. As he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this is something we can agree with Roman Catholics, isn't it? We have good reason from the Bible to believe that this verse is speaking about Peter, and we need not to be scared about this. And yes, we can agree with them that Peter is acting as a leader among the apostles, as seen in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts, and that Peter is referring to Peter specifically in this passage. But where we disagree with Rome is that Rome takes things too far to say that this is referring to Peter and the popes that succeed after him. Why? Because nowhere in scripture speaks about Peter passing the keys of the kingdom to the pope. Secondly, the word rock here is a picture language to describe a solid foundation. And we know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 20 that Peter isn't just the only foundation. Together with the prophets and the other apostles, they are the foundation of the church. As he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And the third reason is that from Matthew chapter 18 and John 20, which we will look at later, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are given to every single Christian including you and me. The keys are not given just to Peter only. There's a lot more I can say about this, but to keep things short, we've got to move on. But in summary, what we can say is that in light of the whole Bible, Peter isn't the only one who is the foundation and has the keys. The other apostles are the foundation of the church too, and the keys are being entrusted to every disciple. Then in verse 18, Jesus promised us that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. It's likely that the gates of hell here is a picture language used to describe the demonic power from the realm of the dead. And the reason why these evil, spiritual, demonic forces shall not prevail against his church is because he has entrusted the keys of his kingdom to his church. The keys are symbolic language to describe someone being entrusted with great authority to open and close something very important. Earlier in our Old Testament reading of Isaiah chapter 22, God has placed on the shoulders of his servant Eliakim the key of the house of David. Eliakim shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Like Eliakim, 
Peter and all the disciples of Christ are entrusted with great authority so that whatever they buy on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever they lose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And what will that look like practically for us? What does it mean for us to exercise the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, to be clear, I don't think Matthew intends to give us a systematic explanation of the nature of these keys in our passage today. But for the sake of clarity, we look at Matthew chapter 18 and John chapter 20 so that we can understand the nature of the keys of the kingdom better and to see how they are worked out practically in our church. Don't worry, we are not going to look at the final details and do two more sermons. We'll be just going through them briefly to help us understand what are the natures of the keys so that we can appreciate what we do and why we do them in our church. There are three applications we need to know. First is the proclamation of Jesus. Second is about church discipline. And the third is about absolution. So the first application of exercising the keys here is about proclaiming who Jesus is. This we can get from our passage itself. By proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, that is essentially proclaiming the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, we are telling the world who Jesus is and what he came to do. And in doing so, we are exercising the keys of the kingdom. It's not just for Peter. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said, the keys are the exercise of the ministry of the world and belongs to all Christians. So when we tell people that Jesus is God's promised Christ who came to die for the sins of the world and those who humbly repent and put their trust in him can receive forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of their body like how Jesus rose from the grave three days later after crucifixion, then for them, the keys open up the kingdom of heaven to them and their sins are loose in both heaven and earth. But for those who reject the message of the gospel, then the keys shut the kingdom of heaven to them because the wrath of God and his condemnation is resting upon them. Thus for them, their sins are bound in both heaven and earth. The second application can be found in Matthew chapter 18. We see that this is related to church discipline. Allow me to read four verses from there. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you buy on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loose in heaven. In this passage, Matthew again uses the same language of the keys as we seen in our passage today. Right? And these keys are not just for Peter because if you look at verse 15 of this chapter carefully, this church discipline application calls upon all of us to forgive our brothers and sisters. So you see, church discipline is about reconciliation. It's about restoring the repentant brothers and sisters in Christ who have sinned against us. And we can forgive them because Jesus has already forgiven their sins. But it's also protecting the church by purging those who live a very sinful and unrepentant lifestyle and only receive them back as the members of the body of Christ when they prove themselves to be genuinely repentant. 
Exercising church discipline as a second application of the keys will help to preserve order and integrity within the Church of Christ. This will ensure the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And finally, the third application of the keys we look at is something we Anglicans practice every week in our liturgical service, and this is called absolution. In John chapter 20, Jesus said to the disciples in verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Notice how the language here is similar to the keys of our passage today. It is an allusion. Furthermore, the forgiveness of sins mentioned in this passage echoes back to the binding and losing language in Matthew 18. Some people think this is just for the apostles. But if you compare this with the chronology of the Gospel of Luke carefully, you see that this is for all disciples. Let's look at the working, shall we? In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Pay attention to two things, evening and first day of the week, where Jesus appears to the disciples. Then in Luke chapter 24, verse 1, it says, but on the first day of the week, same day, right? After Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus was with them, same day, same evening. And as we seen in Luke chapter 24, verse 29, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so after Jesus stayed with them for a while, broke the bread, and he disappeared, the two of them, in verse 33, rose from that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. See, it says eleven and with those who were with them. So it's not just the apostles. Right? Those here refers to other disciples as well. They are the people Jesus appeared to in Jerusalem. On the same day, same evening, the same people whom Jesus said to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And later in the Corinthian church, when Paul was writing regarding the person who truly repented after committing a terrible sin, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. The principle you see in John chapter 20, which I have shown is for all Christians, not just for the apostles only, is now being exercised in the church of Corinth as a whole. Now this is not to say that Jesus and Paul who wrote the letter to the Corinthians do not believe only God can forgive sins. Of course, they believe that only God can forgive sins. But at the same time, it is true that Jesus has given his disciples the authority to forgive sins. So it's an authority derived from, from our Lord Jesus himself. Now, this does not mean that uh, being his disciples, we can simply forgive arbitrarily without any good reason. Forgiveness of sins must always be tied together with the gospel. So when a sinner humbly repents and believes in the gospel, the sins of that person have already been loosed in heaven by God, and the doors of the heaven are already open to him. 
And so when the disciples of Jesus forgive the sins of that person, what they are doing is that they are bringing in the reality of what God has already done in heaven to earth. As per the footnotes of our ESV Bible say in verse 19, which I think is a better translation. It says, whatever you buy on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth shall have been loose in heaven. Meaning to say, the phrase shall have been show us that it was already a done deal in heaven first. So how we express this within our Anglican church is that right, in the liturgical service, after we confess our sins to God through the prayer of confession, then our ordained clergy will say, Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There's also another version from our 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which the clergy can also say, Our Lord Jesus Christ will have left power to His Church to absolve all sinners who truly repent and believe in Him. Of His great mercy, forgive thee thine offenses, and by His authority committed to me, I absolve thee from all thy sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. How we express our understanding of the keys of the kingdom in our liturgy is very similar to the liturgy of the Methodist and Lutheran churches and in some Presbyterian churches. Those of you who came from those denominational backgrounds, you'll be very familiar with what I'm talking about. We need not to be afraid of the absolution part in our liturgy because there's good biblical basis for them in John chapter 20. And this absolution thing isn't just something just for the clergy to say. Right? The clergy says this in service because he's the one representing the entire church and he's been entrusted by God to shepherd his church. But outside the formal gathering of our service, we can say this to each other. Because remember, the keys of the kingdom are given to every disciple. Martin Luther says, Any Christian can say to you, God forgives you your sins. And if you can accept that word with a confident faith, as though God was saying it to you, then in that same faith, you are surely absolved. Knowing this will help us to understand how mainline Protestant churches like ours have been practicing this since the Reformation. As we practice this, we can lovingly assure our brothers and sisters in Christ that their sins are forgiven. Remember my story of how I apostatized back then? I really need someone to tell me my sins are forgiven. And I'm thankful that my friend, whom I reached out to, gave me that assurance, especially when I thought that I have crossed the line and have gone too far to the point that perhaps God will no longer forgive me. I'm grateful that my friend told me my sins are forgiven in Christ. This assurance is something all of us need. So we need our brothers and sisters to lovingly and confidently tell it to our face that our sins are indeed forgiven in Christ. And this is really important because by doing so, we are helping them by pointing them back to the gospel. Now as we continue with the last verse of our passage, in verse 20, after giving the keys, then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The reason is because the crowds have a wrong conception and expectations of the anointed Christ. 
They were expecting a victorious political messiah that will set free from them, uh, set free them free with military might from the Roman Empire. They were not expecting a Christ to die on the cross. In fact, it's not just the crowds. The disciples themselves, including Peter, had a wrong expectation of Christ, which we'll see in our next week's sermon. Hence, at this point of uh, the passage, it's still not yet the right time for Jesus to reveal his identity as the anointed Christ to the public. But unlike the disciples in this passage who have not come to realize his identity as a suffering Christ, we, on the other hand, are in a better place now. We know Jesus came to suffer and to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world, and he will come back again to judge the living and the dead. In this chapter, Jesus said to tell no one that he is the Christ because the timing wasn't right for him. But at the end of the Matthew Gospel, Jesus has revealed himself to everyone that he is the Christ. And he has told us to go into the world to make disciples of all nations. So could we be willing to go out to tell the world, to tell everyone that he is the Christ, the one who saves us from our sins and the wrath of God? Don't worry if you feel like you're not ready because you're not trained to share the gospel. Given enough training and enough time, Anyone who eventually be able to tell the world about Jesus. God can use anyone for evangelism. If God can, certain, if God can use the undereducated fisherman like Peter, God can certainly use you too. What really matters now is not our skills, but the willingness of our heart. So the question is, are you willing? Do you have a willing heart to tell this dying world about Jesus and to offer them the hope of this salvation? And I reckon that some of us here are looking forward to plant a new church. If God willing, that is good. But not every one of us here will plant a new church. Most of us will stay back here, right? However, we can always go out of our comfort zone to bring the gospel to others. Is there someone in your growth group that needs to know more about Jesus? How can you be helping your growth group leader and other members to help that someone to know about Jesus better? If you see that other GGs, like other growth groups, are in terrible shape and need help, would you consider moving out from your GG and go to the other GGs that need your help? If you see the liturgical congregation needs more discipleship, would you consider moving to the liturgical site to strengthen them? We are planning to plant new GGs within the liturgical congregation. Would you be willing to help the new GG leaders with this? This is so that we can reach out to more people to tell them about Jesus. Telling people about Jesus doesn't mean we should only tell to those who are in our comfort zone. It often means being, being willing to make the sacrifice, to go out of our comfort zone where there will be not much support and you'll be the one to give more support than to receive support. We're trusting that God's grace will preserve you in the process. And you'll learn how to depend on God more than, the pe more than people as you step out from your comfort zone. So would you consider, in what ways would you be willing to go out of your comfort zone to tell others about Jesus besides planting a new church? In closing, now that we know the true identity of Jesus, and if you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord, would you confess together with us that Jesus is our Lord and Savior? Don't be like me lah, in hesitating to confess my feelings to my crush. Unlike my crush who rejected me in the past, Jesus will not reject you if you come to him today. So there's no need to hesitate. 
Just come to Jesus and confess to him that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the greatest confession that you can make in your life. And don't be stupid like me, turning my back on Jesus last time. Because if you confess Jesus rightly, then the kingdom of heaven will be open to you. And you'll be authorized to build his church with the keys of the kingdom together with those who confess Jesus rightly. So let's make good use of the keys of the kingdom together. Do open and shut the kingdom of heaven by proclaiming the gospel so that God's kingdom will continue to at once and the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today for your word has shown us clearly who Jesus is. Regardless of what the world says about Jesus, they can say that he's just a legendary fiction, someone who never existed. They can say that he's just a good moral teacher and nothing more special than that. But we will not buy into, do, into what the world outside here says about Jesus. Because before you, we want to confess that Jesus is indeed the promised Christ we have sent into the world. He's indeed your Son, our Lord and Saviour. Thank you for opening our eyes to see who Jesus is. And we thank you for the promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against our church, since nothing can stop your kingdom from advancing. So we pray that you grant us a willing heart to make use of the keys of the kingdom, to step out from our comfort zone, to go out to the world and tell them about the good news about our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that they will come to faith in Jesus as we tell them your gospel. So we pray all this through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.